0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, January 11th. At least it is in the United States. And our guest tonight is Ira David Sokol. David, uh, Ira, I should have asked us how to say your last name, and I'm just so embarrassed I didn't. Uh, tell me how you say your name.
1: Sokol. Sounds good. you got it just right.
0: <laughs> That's such a newbie error, and I make it so frequently I'm just embarrassed. Anyway, really delighted to have you here, so appreciate your your coming on. Future of Education is sponsored by Illuminate, my employer, now Blackboard Collaborate. The project I work on is a social network for educators, a free social network for educators called LearnCentral.org that has Illuminate baked in for your version, so we hope you'll come and use that. You can also host your own webinar series there. Uh, email me if you need any information on that. Coming up on the future of education next week, Will Richardson. I'm really excited about how 2011 is shaping up. Then uh, Barnett Berry on his anthology, Teaching 2030. On the 24th, we get to hear from Karen Cater on the EdTech plan. Uh, and then the next day, we get to hear from Gary Stager. I think that's going to be a brilliant pairing. On February 1st, David Wiley talks to us about open education. Karen Hume on a book, Tuned Out. David Perkins comes on to talk about making learning whole. That should be really a lot of fun. Kevin Kelly on his book What Technology Wants. Then Jim Klein's going to talk about social networking in the elementary grades and in a school community. Sandy Hirsch will talk about libraries and digital literacy. Frederick Hess on his book The Same Thing Over and Over. Again, another you know another interview on education reform. Bernard Jean Porter is going to talk about local efforts to build um, educational cultures. Then Barry Schwartz on his uh, fascinating book, The Paradox of Choice. Cal Newport uh, will talk as part of our new Hacking Your Education subseries. And then you can see we've got some fun books coming up. Uh, the author of The Art of Nonconformity, a book I just loved. Uh, the authors of a book called The Invisible Gorilla, uh, probably the best most interesting book I've read in a couple of years. And then Denise Pope from Stanford on her book, Doing School. If you've missed an interview, they're all recorded and they're up at futureofeducation.com. Uh, there's a podcast stream. There are also the full, Illuminate recordings. Our last interview, it seems like so long ago in December, was with Alfie Cohn. Before that, Deborah Meyer, Julie Young. Lots of fun names. Hopefully there's something there of interest to you and we're furthering the dialogue. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. There are lots of ways for you to interact. Um, we hope that you will feel comfortable asking questions in the chat, and raising your hand. If you go up to view layouts, you're likely to have a better experience if you choose the wide layout. It makes the chat a little bit easier to see. At the bottom of the participant window you see you have some emoticons, smiley face, clapping hand, confused look or thumbs down. We don't get many of those, but you're welcome to use them. The larger icon, the hand with the green up arrow, indicates that you would like to ask a question. Uh, If you don't mind, we'll we'll kind of do that toward the second half of the interview, Uh, but that's how you'd raise your hand to take the microphone. If you do think that you might take the microphone, quickly go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your mic is working. Now I'm going to give you a chance to (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're getting tweeted about in some funny ways. Okay, so this is a map of the world. And if you look to the left, you'll see a wand with a red star. That allows you to indicate where you're listening from, participating from. Go ahead and click on that wand and then click on the map. So North America, United States, China, a couple in Australia reading about Australia every day because of the rain and the flooding. Hard to watch. Feel free to do a shout out in the chat. Let us know exactly where you are, the time, and the temperature. And wherever you are listening from or if you're listening to the recording, we are sure glad that you have joined us. So Ira, I'm really glad that we're doing this interview, and in part because uh, it it gave me a chance to get to know you a little through your writing. And I'm afraid I didn't know that much about you. But also because it feels as though you you weave together some threads from the interview series in a really beautiful way. Um, The discussions that we've had about how you build educational cultures and the need for diversity of ways of doing that, and the need for diversity of learning styles but also then kind of marrying that to an understanding of the role of technology and what technology can do in terms of, and especially the interactive social media, internet technologies can do um, as tools for learning. So thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Steve. It's it's great to be part of this group, to be part of this conversation, and, and there's a great group of people who are here, so
0: I hope it's a great. Discussion as we move along. I'm sure it will be. Okay, so um, would you could you tell briefly sort of your story, um, maybe maybe starting with your own school experiences and then the kind of variety of jobs and things you've done and where you are now.
1: Well, it's a long sort of strange story, but um, I I always say that I I come originally to, and I've sort of gotten into this field through the field of special education, but I come to it through um, an unusual path. I've never been a special education teacher in K-12. Rather, I've I've been a special education student, and that's my background. That's where my interest in this begins. Um, I'm a person who, going to school, growing up, really struggled with uh, some of the basics that make school work or not work. That is, I had real trouble writing, real trouble reading. Um, I still struggle somewhat with, with reading. I struggle with keyboarding. I really uh, I can draw very well, but I don't make letters um, unless I'm copying them from something else at all. Um, and and perhaps the biggest issue that I had in school was the ability to sit in the seat um, and spend time locked in a room all day. Um, so my experience was with resource rooms and with different kinds of evaluations and different kinds of placements and eventually, and I always describe it as very luckily, um, I, I ended up in a uh, an alternative high school that had been designed by Neil Postman and some teachers in the city of Niroshell, New, New York, which is just outside of the Bronx. Um, and it was that educational experience that shaped a lot of what I think, and also I, I think saved my life in a lot of significant ways. Um, the the nature of that school was that uh, no one had to be there in particular at any particular time. There were no particular credits. There were no required classes. Uh, there were no grades. You assembled things um, as you needed to learn them. So for instance, English for me, because I did not read or write particularly well, involved one year where I um, followed a, a radio newsman around um, overnight. Um, a couple of days a week, and thus I learned about interviewing and editing and writing, and um, all without doing anything with print. And, and that I think is a, a classic example of um, where I come into these, uh, where I where I come into this. Uh, Since then I've had a lot of educational experiences and a lot of jobs. Um, I've studied graphic design, I've studied architecture, Um, I've been a New York City police officer and thus went through the New York City Police Academy, um, which was probably one of the first places that gave me real tech support at the time, which was books on cassette in a big way. Um, I, after being a New York City police officer, I I ended up uh, in Michigan and trying to go back to school at uh, Grand Valley State University and it was there that um, through working for uh, the IT department there that I got into the field of assistive technology and, and was a place where we developed one of the first in America fully sort of accessible campus computing environments where computers read to you or you could speak to computers and dictate to them. Uh, they blow everything up, you know, if you needed enlarged things. they do all sorts of stuff. And what we were most proud about there was that we did it everywhere. And we didn't require that anybody sign any documentation or have any proof that they needed to use these tools. They just got to use them. Of course that was back, as I say, in the last century. And stuff was very expensive then. Now it's very inexpensive. And In the last ten years I've I've worked with first with vocational rehabilitation um, uh, and thus I got to see the results of special education at least in Michigan in a big way um, through transition services. Uh, And then I was sort of recruited to come to Michigan State and work on a PhD in uh, special education technology. There I've done a lot of international work touching on um, resources in other countries and comparing things and seeing what best practices are not just in any one place but sort of globally um, and done a lot of work with the idea of spreading universal design and rebuilding our school environments so that all students have a chance to succeed which is uh, my, my primary goal. But a large part of this, and I'll just say this at the end, is, is actually driven by studying the history of education, and one of the things that studying the history of education has taught me is that the schools that we have inherited were designed for a specific reason, and and it's really not a very pleasant reason. It's not; it would, They were not designed to do good. They were designed to divide society and to filter students out. And
0: um, we
1: it's become imperative to me that we rethink everything about what our schools are like in order to, if we have any intention of having a wider range of students succeed than succeed now. Um, does that catch us up?
0: <laughs> I think it does quite well. Okay, so uh, uh, before we kind of jump in. Um, I wanted to ask a couple questions about that background. Uh, the drool, You said that the drool room is not fully autobiographical, but I get the sense that, in many ways, it represents experiences that you had that you felt needed to be shared.
1: I I, I much prefer the novel and the, and the use of fiction to tell effective stories than to get bog down into did something happen in a certain order or did something happen in a certain place or in an exact way. And I think fiction allows me to tell a story that's very personal and but very important to me in a way that I thought was more effective. So I will say I always like to say to people that it's autobiographically informed, but I'm not writing memoirs and I I don't like the memoir (laughs) uh, mode. Um, But I think The Drill Room touches on the struggles and the I, I wanted to touch on the lifetime struggles that learning differently, um, that learning in a way you're not recognized by the world and the, the people in power uh, affects you not just in school but in everything you do and um, it was a hard book to write um, it was <laughs> it, it took a lot of years to get, to get those stories out but um, I hope it has, I hope it resonates with people. I, I began it with the idea that I wanted other people who um, struggled with these things or worked with people who struggled with these things to hear
0: a first-person account. So how did you write it? Did you record it? What was your method for getting it into printed word?
1: You know, one of one of the things that um, I... I always like to say is that I use a lot of different tools uh, when I do things. So I'd say that about 50% of the drool room was dictated through um, originally uh, IBM's Via Voice product, um, which is now sort of an ancient technology, but was was very very effective for me and something I had used from the mid '90s on as as a way of using uh, speech recognition uh, and speech to text. Um, other parts of it were um, were keyboarded traditionally and um, sometimes with all sorts of different uh, keyboarding techniques like. There are a couple of chapters that were written while I was uh, really trying to use the Dvorak uh, keyboard um, and and so there were a lot of different ways um, but it was all, all done using the um, technologies that worked for me at the moment that I was, I was working it in. Um, so none of it was <laughs> put onto paper. No part of it has ever existed on paper until it ended up in a print book. Um, that was the, the sort of first time. And, you know, I depended a lot, as I think all of us do, on on people editing and supporting it, but um, I use a lot of different technologies, as I do all day long. I, at the time that it was written, I didn't type as much on my phone as I do now or dictate into my phone as I do now. But, um, uh, it used everything that I had at the moment.
0: So um, Chris has asked the question, and Chris, I'm going to go ahead and, and weave that in right now. If you do have a question, you put it in the chat and it doesn't get addressed, I am trying to capture them and I'll save them for the end. So I if I've, if I've read your material correctly, the overall story for me is uh, that the, the system isn't actually failing. It's doing what it was designed to do. So if we don't like the outcomes, then we can't just tinker with the system. We actually have to consider a complete overhaul. Is that a fair representation?
1: That's pretty much my point. And, you know, as I've gone back and one of the things I've spent much of the last two years doing is Reading the documents that design the education system, mostly in the United States, but also in the United Kingdom uh, and its empire in the 19th century, and what you find is a system very specifically designed to fail between 75 and 80 percent of the students. And everybody from Henry Barnard, who's one of the original authors of the system, to Woodrow Wilson talks about that fact that you need about one-fifth of the students to succeed. In, in their mind that meant get to high school. Um, and that's because the country needed about that amount of clerks and managers. And everyone else was, the system was literally designed to, to filter them out into uh, manual labor. That is to Uh, to get them out of school and if you look at the United States before World War II you'll see that evidence very strongly. About 20% of people um, graduated from high school. About 30% of people ever went to high school at all. And so the whole design of the system, the age-based grades, which was originally imported from Prussia, it was called the Prussian model for, for about 100 years was designed to create a series of steps at which an increasing number of students would fail at each point. That's why we have grades based on students' ages and that's why we have um, grade-based expectations so that students will fail them. Um, That is what creates the whole idea of, of disability, of of, uh, in fact, you are literally, if you're not keeping up, I mean the term retarded was there for a very specific reason, that is you were not, pro- um, you were not progressing at the rate they expected you to do and that rate was established, as it still is, based on uh, middle-income people raising their children and what those children were prepared to do at each age group. And so, of course, because education is our system of social reproduction. It is how society reproduces itself. Schools were designed to ensure that those with money would continue to have power through educational success. And those on the outside um, would not. if you go back to the very beginning, the 1840s, of course, the educational system, people actually used the word, the purpose of public schools as they were introduced into America was to decatholicify the country. Um, that is, people were terrified of these bizarre Catholic people coming from Ireland who spoke very strangely, often in a completely different language, who worshipped an odd religion that was very threatening to the country um, and and so school was constructed and remains as Protestant churches were constructed. It is why we have uh, rectangular classrooms, they were traditionally painted white with, with a frontal focus, which is why we have a scheduled time when things start and not Students coming in whenever they could. Um, it's why we're book-based um, instead of instead of uh, verbally-based um, instruction, like a Catholic mass would be. So what we see is a whole setup of things designed to do something very specific. And if we don't like it, if we don't like what's going on, it's the system that has to change. It's not the teachers or the students. It, the system was designed to do something, and at and 170 years later, it continues to do it very well.
0: So I want to go back to Chris's question and kind of weave it in, and maybe put our current moment in a little bit of context, because uh, you know you've been talking about this for some time. You know, I interviewed John Taylor Gatto uh, earlier or last year, and certainly he's been talking about this for 20 years or. or Things like this I don't mean to equate necessarily your messages, but um, there's, there is a difficulty in changing the perceptions, and how unique is this particular moment where these discussions are taking place right now, um, and how much of it is still just peripheral conversations about education that will, that will have great difficulty in forming the whole?
1: Well, you know I. I I have great respect for Gatto and, and I think he's one of the few historians who has consistently um, brought the message of what the intention of the system was out there. Um, it, it, it's actually a, a very cyclical situation and we see the same argument come up over and over again. So if we go back to 1840, which is really the birth of public education as we know it in the United States and and also um, within the British Empire, Um, what what we see is a time of incredible change in information and communication technologies. That is, um, in the 1840s you have in rapid succession the invention of machine-made paper from wood pulp, which is a dramatic change. The invention of the steam-driven rotary press, which allows books to be created really quickly and allows newspapers to be created very easily. Thus, from those things, you get the penny newspaper, the first popular press in the country in a big way. And you get books into people's hands in a big way. Right along with that, you get the invention of the telegraph, which of course allows information to move at an incredible, you know, instantly where it had been unbelievably slow before that. And simultaneously with that, you get the steamship and and the and the, um, and the, the railroad, um, allowing people to move. So technology changes completely, and people's conception of the world and how they learn about the world changes dramatically during that time period. But something else is happening in the 1840s and it's critical and it's true both in the United States and in the British Empire. Because of the revolutions in Europe and the famine in Ireland, you get massive migrations of people, which means that you have people changing um, the nature of society simply by them moving in. If this sounds similar to today, I would argue that (laughs) there's good reason for it. All of these things are happening again. You see a, a similar experience, sort of a, a midpoint experience of this in what I would say the 1890 to 1910 period when again technology changes radically. Suddenly you have photographs and you have films and then you have wireless and, and um, cognition changes. I mean it's very different. once people first saw film, then film meant things were real to them. And that was so true that when Edison couldn't get film of the Spanish-American War, he had to fake it because people didn't believe it was going on unless they saw it as film and saw it moving. So this is where I say that technology really does change cognition in each stage of the big thing. But again of course in that period around the turn of the 20th century you get another massive movement of people based around revolutions and um, and oppression and things And, and again you get society being remixed which is very very threatening to people. It, at each of these stages, so if we go back to 1840, we have on one hand Henry Barnard who writes the system as it currently exists. But we also have William Alcott, who is who's sort of a hero of mine, who is an ex-teacher um, in Massachusetts and who writes from a student and teacher point of view and tries to make students comfortable. Um, he talks a lot about, you know, students shouldn't be sitting in chairs all day. He, he introduces the chalkboard into the classroom because it's a, a more interactive system than just people talking to the room. Um, and he represents one side, the flexible side, uh, yeah, so William Alcott who's part of the famous Alcott family and Henry Barnard of the, um, who's sort of the founder of things. When you get to 1900 you get a similar battle, you get John Dewey on one hand, um, and Maria Montessori, who uh, Maria Montessori, who I think you could say is on the Dewey side, against Elwood Coverley, who is, of course becomes dean of the Stanford's College of Education and the most influential person in American education in the twentieth century. Um, and they have that fight again: Dewey and Montessori, suggesting that things have to be humane and open, and they have to be student-centered, and um, Coverley. Um, and Thorndike, yes, <laughs> creating. Um, have, you know, are they are to say no? Education's purpose is to serve society in a very specific way. That is to prepare workers and citizens in a specific way for the continuation of society. And if we go all the way to now, we see the exact same argument being played out. Um, the um, we, we, we see the same struggle. Now in the last two rounds um, the people with the money and the resources and uh, I hate to make this a class war thing but the capitalists behind them have won. That's not a huge surprise. Um, they have the resources um, and, and they have the voice. Whether um, it was Samuel Colt you know, way back when, um, talking about the need for uh, workers to be trained to show up for shift work on time, or Bill Gates now. Um, So we get the same thing. So this goes in a cycle. Um, And one of the things to realize is, we're not alone in this historic moment. Um, We're participants in a continuing struggle.
0: Is there any reason to believe that the internet as a uh, tool that allows for greater broad-based kind of groundswell movements uh, could change the outcome here?
1: I think there's a lot of evidence that this play isn't, is playing out in a different time. Um, because it's it's much, it's harder now for people to dominate. Um, people think, for example, that um, the the printing press, the Gutenberg era, allowed a lot of dissent and arguments, and to an extent it did. Um, we had people like Thomas Paine and Ben Franklin who could get a hold of presses and publish and work and, and things like that. But the problem with the Gutenberg era was always that the technologies of, of the era that is now ending in, tech, in, in communications technology is that control of this always costs a great deal of money. Printing presses were expensive. Distributing books and newspapers is extremely expensive. Uh, Owning television stations and radio stations brings you into government control in a big way. And, um, and so it's been hard for the out of power group to get its uh point across in in a in a very effective way in the past, what we have now is is a few things that sort of level the balance um, we can do this um, I can twitter to people, I can write blogs that can reach lots of people, even though um The traditional publishers may not want to quote what I'm saying. The New York Times won't print what I'm saying, but I can still get it out there. And that gives us choice, but it also gives, and this is the more important thing, um, it gives our students choices. Um, They have ways of getting at information and getting at education in ways that were really, really difficult before. And, And just to sort of give an example of that, When I was in that Neil Postman Design High School, because I was in New York, I could, I and my friends could, access all sorts of information and counter information in in very effective ways. But a student, say, in a small town in Kansas or in Perth in Australia uh, might not be able to have had all those options. But now, because of the technologies, we have an ability to reach beyond those things. And I think if we leverage those, we can make a
0: difference. So I'm intrigued by what feels to me like maybe two separate elements, one of which is that the technology is now allowing for institutions to no longer fully control the message. But I'm also wondering if, if we're not still uh, kind of bogged down by a human nature issue. Um, have you thought about the reasons why we as humans might like the system as it is and why, say, for instance, uh, you know, waiting for Superman uh, had, had sort of almost no information about all of the really good things being done by regular public schools? Is, is there something in our nature that leads us in this direction?
1: We uh I think that's a great question because I think we believe in myths um every bit as much as probably um second millennia um before Christ Greeks did. Um and I I think that hurts us in a in a big way. The other thing is, and Thomas Lazak and another friend and I wrote a couple of blog posts about this um last year that it, is that everybody thinks of themselves as an expert on education because everyone has been through education. So, um, and and we make a sort of odd group of of assumptions here. Um, Very few of us would think that because we were patients, we were ready to be doctors. Um, And very few of us think that because we've driven across a bridge, we could build that bridge. Uh, but there's, there's an assumption that because we've been students in our lives, um, we can, we, we, you know, we somehow know what's going on. And expertise in education is derided for um, a large number of reasons, including the fact that at the turn of the 20th century when other professions organized, um, in the United States at least in a significant way teachers were female and were denied the right to organize in equivalent ways. So doctors and architects and lawyers all um, developed um, Uh, a professional sort of image around themselves that was denied to teachers. Um, So you'd never have, for instance tonight in New Jersey Governor Christie will say that he doesn't think you know anybody has to be training to be a teacher or administrator. Um, He would not say the same thing about his profession, a lawyer, um, but he can get away with it because of our perceptions of teaching. But this comes from deeper beliefs and in in Anglo society um, there is, and and I'm not being religiously insulting here, but there's a Protestant belief in in the idea that success equals moral good. Um, So, Bill Gates, because he's made a lot of money must be good and must know what he's doing. Um, Poor people because they are um, poor and are unsuccessful, must not know what they're doing. And we saw this in the Washington D.C. mayoral primary where um, when 85% of African American mothers in Washington D.C. sexually voted against Michelle Reed, the press was willing to call them stupid because, you know, they don't know enough. So we, we match these things together and. There's, there's, a, there's a third component in this, and I hope I'm not being, you know, too confusing here, but um, education and society is run by uh, people who have succeeded in the traditional way. You don't find a lot of school dropouts, or you haven't until very recently, running major corporations, um, being in Congress, um, controlling the agenda. Um, so the system is built by people who have succeeded in, in this system. And I would say it's about one-third succeeds pretty consistently within that system. Um, that third has the power and has control. And um, People like me, people who really struggled in school, rarely choose to go back into education. Um, it's just not, you know, it, I still get nervous walking into a principal's office and it's been a lot of years. Um, and, and so most people who have this struggle, um, uh, you know, don't end up in this field and they're not Listen to in a way. So I think a whole bunch of things contribute to this, and if that's very confusing, we'll keep going.
0: No, I think it's. Uh, I mean, it, it is important to be thinking about, and I appreciate that you've kind of sussed it out in that way. Um, so but we, we we do have a time limit, so I, and, I, and I want to get the Q and A pretty quickly here. Uh, for me, I get to this place of, okay, if the schools if schools don't do what we actually need as human beings, but they are perpetuated and uh, and they produce uh, all kinds of sort of negative output or outcomes what What is a strategy for affecting change
1: I, I think the biggest strategy for affecting change is empowering the people who are in the school buildings. Um, first and by that I mean both the teachers and the students. I, I sometimes get in trouble for people by saying I'm not big on parental control and I, and I say I'm not big on parental control because if parents can control the agenda we will end up reproducing society exactly, that is the parents who have succeeded in school as it is, who have these skills and the, um, and and the power to push through their agenda um, will, will, will win for their children and the other parents will not. And it's not that um, I'm seeing in the count string, um, it's not that parents can't be innovative, they can be innovative and they can be a powerful source, but um, parents can't be the controlling factor because there are too many kids out there whose parents don't have the capabilities of doing that because their own education has been miserable. So, um, you know, one of the things is that that we need to think of our schools in in wholly different ways. But but this has to to a great extent go on subversively. Um, our kids can still take the stupid tests if they have to, um, and they can. Um, still get credit for whatever bizarre subject divisions we've we've assembled for them. But we don't have to teach that way. Um, In in a blog post I wrote uh, last month that I, I talked about a middle school where we organized it by three projects a year um so that groups of teachers would get together and propose a project and students would sign up for it and um they'd meet together, teachers would come to the students, not students to the teachers. They'd work on a project, say building a habitat for humanity house, and through that they'd study math and they'd study literature and they'd study science and they'd um and and they'd study history and social studies. They'd um Pull their whole curriculum in into that project based thing, and I think yeah. that if we stop thinking that the only way to do things is the way that we have done them since the committee of ten divided up the curriculum in in nineteen ten we can um, or in eighteen ninety i mean we can we can break this up and, and change things so it works for students. The other thing is, and I think this is where technology comes in in a huge way, um, is we have to change our notion of what technology is in school. We have to stop choosing technology for students And we have to start helping students choose technology for themselves. And I talk a lot about tool belt theory and the idea that students have to assemble their own tool belt. They have different tools for different times and different tasks and different needs. But this is what's most important. Every time I see a school saying, well let's buy iPads for everyone or let's buy netbooks for everyone, I see the same thing happening as happened when people decided to give books to every student. Um, and giving books to every student didn't work very well because about two-thirds of people in the United States, and we sort of know this, um, never learned to read above the sixth grade level. Very, reading is very hard when you're talking about income paper and people, most people, don't do very well with it. But if we switch to any other single system, we're doing the same thing again. And um, we need to to unthink that whole industrial platform that every student does things the same way, that everybody does the same thing at the same time, that that everybody sits in the same chair. There is, as Devin is saying, there is nothing for everyone. Um, Nothing um, works for everyone. We have to get that out of our minds. What something that you know, and this is where like somebody like Joel Klein drives me insane is if I walk into a school and there are three third grades and they're all doing the same thing, I think that's the greatest waste of of human capacity we have because those three teachers are different, the students in the classes should be different, and the students should go to the teacher who will work best with them. If I see three American history classes, they should all be doing entirely different things for the same reason. But we we really have to shake up this notion that that education is something we do as this group industrial activity. Um, And we have to think of it as something that enables individuals to figure out what they need and gives them the tools to go do that. That's that's a very difficult shift, but it's a, um, to me, it's the only way that the system changes.
0: So I'm going to play the devil's advocate here for a moment, because I feel as though there are a lot of schools that, depending on your perspective, do a do a really a much better job at this than the majority of schools. And yet they don't seem to change the system or to uh, affect a larger change. Maybe that's okay. Um, But uh, it feels as though there's still a missing link here, a a path for for moving from those good examples to um, somehow some form of action that would make a difference. Um, I'll, I'll leave that there. The second piece here is. But I feel very much protective of the parent. Not necessarily that. Uh, I mean, I understand the concern about parents perpetuating a system, but at the same time, I think we have to recognize the important role of the parent in education. And I and I'm sure it's, your perspective is more nuanced than I heard it. But I do worry that we can't really we can't really go around the parent. How do you respond to that?
1: Well, two things. First, I think that. Um, way back in the chat, um, you know, somebody said, you know, what do you do first? And I'm one of the people who says, you don't solve um, poverty with education, you solve education by solving poverty. Um, That is, if a person is hungry, nothing you do in the classroom is going to be very important to them. Um, If a person is scared, nothing in the classroom is going to be very important to them. And in the United States, and sadly now increasingly say in the United Kingdom, um, we see less support for parents. I mean there's no industrialized country that cares less about families and parenting than the United States does. Um, For all our babbling about family and things, um, we just don't do anything. We don't give parents time to be with their kids. And the less money you have, the less time you have to be with your kids. And parents are the most important factor in this. Um, They're the ones who are home with their kids. And it makes a difference if you're in a Scandinavian country and you get a year off to be with your child and you're paid, um, that child has a start um, that, that the U.S. can't duplicate. And of course, Finland comes out ahead because they, they do that. Um, in we, we need to support parents and we need to give parents the information they need to work for their students. It's not that I want parents out of the loop. I just want all parents in the loop. And right now we have about 20% of parents in the loop. The other thing I'd say about schools doing well is there's a problem with that. I think there are great schools out there. I see great schools all over the place. Yet, yeah, and I'm gonna probably be controversial here for all those people who are in those great schools. We measure great schools by what percentage of students are doing okay. And even in the best schools, there's a big group of people who, of students who aren't doing okay. Um, I can go to, you know, the, the best, the best of the best, and I will see students who are miserable there, because whatever it is is not working for them. And so the, the problem is, is that we, we have a system where we're using industrial measurements to talk about what's happening to individual students um, in individual environments. And I think we can be better. I think what you see in, the, in what I think about as the best schools is you see a high level of individualization. Um, and but we, but we need that to be better in every place. As, um, as Mary Beth just said, you, know, you could be at the highest performing Westchester County, New York, 100% college grade school and still have this horrible, horrible experience. Um, And you can be in the worst school um, and have this great experience, because what we're talking about when we say great or worse is is not the individual experience. And I want to get to the question of the individual experience. What does that best school allow its most troubled student to be? And just to sort of say this, and I know time is short, but um, it's really easy to educate the kids who come to school from great families that are totally supportive, that have all the information around them, the the Blackberry iPhone houses with the computers everywhere who travel all over the place. You know, those kids, there's no reason for them to come to school. In fact, school is probably the place where they do the least during the day. If they just got together with their friends at the local coffee shop, they probably would be ahead. That's never the issue. The issue is for the kid who's struggling, um, who's, who's not finding that natural way to do things, either because of what's going on at home or because of a mismatch between their learning style and their operating style and the rest of society, um, or because of a language thing. Those are the kids that, it, that it's really hard for. And so, to me, saying a school is doing really well or not, you know, as you know, it all depends on who's coming into it and who's doing what. Um, but what I I think we need to do is get away from that idea that we're measuring schools by an average and look at each kid.
0: Okay. Well, we're we've uh, I, it's my fault, but we we haven't left as much time for Q and A as I would have liked. So we're going to quickly shift to Q and A. Um, Ira, we can obviously do a whole series with you because. of my notes are even untouched at this point. Um, If you would like to ask Ira a question, please use the hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand and I'll give you the microphone. Do be sure to test your microphone first by going to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard. I've made note of some questions. If I've missed one, please put it in the chat again. Um, Chris asked, uh, if the agenda is in fact substantive ecological change, should the truly should the first truly focused and universally adopted use of technology be to eradicate poverty?
1: You know, I, I, it's hard. That's that's of course our right ideal thing, but well, let me just say, um, let me just say this: it is impossible to eradicate poverty in a capitalist country. Capitalism requires um, that some people succeed and some people fail. That's the motivating system of a capitalist economy. So you cannot eradicate poverty within the system in the United States. The the better you do um, at eradicating poverty, um, the the better education will be. The, The reason that those Scandinavian countries look so good on those international comparison tests is that they have equalized their societies to the greatest extent and, and have provided us the significant safety net the U.S. refuses to do. So I'd love to do that, but I don't know
0: how to. Chris asked several questions and we'll come back uh, to another one in a minute, but Maria asked, uh, what communities or networks do you see as educationally successful for your pluralistic model of education?
1: Well, I, I think that we see, um, I think that we see a lot of people trying to do really effective things, and we, we see it in, um, we unfortunately see it in small pockets, and we don't see much replication. I know, for example, that in Western Michigan there's, there's an elementary school in a, in a really traditional um, public school district, um, it's, so it's a K-5 school, and after kindergarten they have three um, possible tracks for students. One is a sort of traditional first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade thing. Uh, another is looping with teachers staying with kids for a couple of years in, in say a 1-2, two, a 2-3, two, that kind of thing. And the third is about 120 kids and 6 teachers in one giant multi-age 1-5 through five classroom. Um, what that models, now that school, though it follows very few of the rules <laughs> um, of things, It does better than any other elementary school in Western Michigan um, on the state standardized test. Part of it is that they work really hard with the parents to match the students to the environment that's healthiest for them. Then within that, they eliminate lots of the rules and teach real self-reliance, that is um, there's no library time kids go to the library when they need to um, or when they want to uh, they work all over the halls they wander the things um, you you see that's a tremendous success in a school in a in a school community which has one of the largest income spreads I, I know of in, a, in in an elementary school so I think it's it's all possible. I, I have been in a lot of schools I see as tremendously successful, um, but what they all have in common is that they break those basic rules of doing the same thing with every kid.
0: Um, M. Rammy asks, what can we do as classroom teachers even if we are limited by larger school, district, societal forces around us?
1: You know, this is is a really tense question because teachers are under so much pressure to do the wrong things. Um, Way back when I was in a a really horrific junior high school, um, I had an English teacher who So he had been assigned this group of people. It was called dumb English by everybody in the school. It was like, you know, the classic 25 boys and four girls, you know, stuffed in this room. And he just decided that he could teach his curriculum his way. But the first thing he did was he asked us all what grade we wanted. And everyone in the class would get the same grade no matter what we did. And he just wanted to take that off the question. We picked something that gave us like a B plus because uh, we didn't think anyone would believe that we'd get anything higher than that. But then he did, and this was a sort of standard junior high school thing, he taught the dystopian novels. But when he taught the dystopian novels, he gave us the books, he showed us the movies, he read us from them, um, he played audio books of them. um, And um he he changed the whole environment in, a, in in a way that you know nobody in that class will ever forget and he got production out of that in um in, in big things um and i think that you can break a lot of the the rules in your classroom um and move beyond the sort of standard even when you have all these people breathing down your neck. I mean, it's hard and I'm with you, but um, I think it's possible
0: in most places. Rachel asked, what do we do about Common Core standards? Do we lie down and let them happen and then change and alter, or is there an alternative?
1: You know, I I mean, Common Core is everything everything I hate. Um and uh because not because I think that um it isn't healthy to have some commonality in our societal knowledge, uh, but because of what it turns out to in um in 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 actual schools. And I think we let them you know, we're not gonna win this fight right now. So um uh what, what we need to do is sort of twist it to our own way. And again, I'll point out that you know this this Neil Postman free school in the 70s and 80s, as it existed in New York, was in New York, where every high school student still has to take those though, still have to take those Regents exams all the time, which which is very much the Common Core sort of idea and the standardized testing idea. And People took the test. Nobody cared what we got on the test as long as we squeaked through Um, but people took the test but what we did had nothing to do with the test and um, to an extent we have to take what we've got we have to, you know, unfortunately we're forced into living in the environment we're in which is pretty brutal right now Um, but, you know, you have to do what you have to do um, to. Uh, to protect your kids first, and and then let them sort of succeed, if that makes
0: any sense. Okay, we've probably got time for just one or two more questions. Chad had asked, uh, what's your advice, he has two questions, but I'm going to put them together. What's your advice for those in the system or those without to collaborate together on some kind of structural procedural work that would help Move the change forward.
1: You know, I think that there's uh, within and without, um, and I know that you know the the uh, the teachers union in New Jersey is is working toward this. Is um, I think we need to take school boards, local school boards, very seriously, and we need to get the right people on them. We need to get people who are pro. Uh, student on them. Um, There is a political dimension in this. Right now, um, we also need to hold our elected officials um, accountable in a way that we're just not doing right now. Um, And, and, you know, in the U.S., we're sort of trapped by the two-party system, and and it, it is a trap. Um, and our first pass the post voting things, but we, we have to work real intensely day in and day out at saying to our elected officials um, that what they're doing is wrong. So that, that's, that's one part of it. The other thing is, within schools, um, we need to build teams of people who are, who are forcing change when it doesn't happen. Um, uh, my mother was a third-grade teacher for a lot of years, and, and at one point in a not very creative school, she and two other teachers somehow talked the janitors into knocking holes in the walls to link three classrooms together, and they did a multi-age room. And they sort of got away with it. Um, um, they, you know, they they pulled that off in a real, They threw their furniture out. They you know let the kids sit on the floor. They let everybody wander around. They 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 pulled it off within their own little thing, and I think we sometimes see ourselves as powerless when we're not look around your buildings, see what you can what you can reconceive um, We're not as powerless as those in power want us to
0: believe so I'm wondering is there a network or a group that you or those in the audience feel like is very supportive uh, for those who are kind of fighting that fight, uh, is there a place to go where people are trading ideas, patting each other in the back, giving um, helpful advice?
1: I think we have to get a whole lot better at this. I mean I think as Mary Beth and Jose are both saying, Twitter is is a huge place where people get that kind of support. Blogging, um, rethinking schools, which just came up as another. Um, We need to be much better at at creating these virtual communities. And <clears throat> and I think it's it's important because we are scattered. We're not all I mean I know I can look down this list of people here and say there are pockets of people who are together and doing things. But There are also tons of teachers out there who are scattered all over the place. And they're the ones who are having the hardest time because they don't have that support all the time. So every time you can build a cooperative site, a Google Doc that people can comment and join in on, um, every time you can bring people into a Twitter group where communication is happening in effective ways, um, you're, you're building that kind of connection. We do not yet have colleges of education doing the kind of outreach they should be doing to build to build this kind of thing. That's who should be leading this: is our colleges of education. But unfortunately, they're not. So we have to do it ourselves. And I, I'm constantly amazed be they. Um, Ed camps, or or you know, just or tweet ups, or just people gathering together, or and I just see the sort of power of what's going on um, um, on Twitter um, in these conversations when when people hold events like this, that I I see real possibilities and um, I just think there is no one place, but I think it's um, I think we have places and and we just have to work. them.
0: Okay. We've gone over the top of the hour. I'd like to finish on time just so that you know that that we've been thoughtful about your time. I'm flipping through your slides here because we never actually got to them, but this is a terrific slide deck. Uh, If you would like to save these slides, uh, those of you in the audience, you can go up to File, Save, and Save the Whiteboard. And you can save it in PDF form and look at it later. You can also do the same thing in the recording. So if you miss now, you can go back to the recording and save it. Um, I'm going to put up the a a ton of great material there. Thanks to Illuminate. Thanks to uh, you for attending. Thanks so much, Ira, for coming. There are the upcoming episodes. Um, I'm going to clap for you, Ira. really appreciate your voice and getting to know you a little bit better tonight.
1: Thanks for having me, Steve, and and we'll do it again another year, you know, uh, or another time. Um, um, it was great, um, and we'll
0: talk soon. Really appreciate it. Okay, so we're going to let Ira go. Uh, those of you who need to leave, you're certainly welcome to. You just go to File and Exit, or you can click at the top right uh, X button to exit out. I'm going to stay for a few more minutes to see if there's any post-chatter i uh, curious as to what your thoughts are, if there are things that came up that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you'd like to uh, to bring up. Again, thanks to Ira, and thanks to you who've come. This sort of ends the formal portion, but I'll keep the recording going in case there are those who want to take the mic and say anything. I'm kind of curious about the... the yes, thanks um, uh, to everybody. I'm kind of curious, and I know, uh, Thomas, that... Uh, You and I want to connect and and, uh, why don't we do that maybe by Skype as soon as we're done and I'll give you my Skype address here. I am kind of curious about this community thing and I made some notes, sort of like a hidden heroes network or grassroots change agents or, and I feel as though Twitter and the blogosphere do a good job, but they almost aren't going to be easy to expand around the single idea of uh, teachers who are making a difference in this particular way in their classrooms. So I'm, I'm kind of curious as to your thoughts on that, uh, are there, are, am I missing the boat there in some way? And while you're answering, um, Grant, the, at futureofeducation.com there will be a an MP3 recording and there will also be a full Illuminate, a link to the page with a full Illuminate recording so that you can see the full session and all the chat if you'd like to as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a variety of opinions about what kind of change is needed. And so my guess is that, um, that the vision given tonight is maybe unique in some ways, uh, sort of very student-centric. And so, you know, does it need a network for people who are specifically trying to um, create student-centric uh, classroom environments, or, or should it happen more organically? My concern is not for those of you who are here who have PLNs, my guess is you do a pretty good job of that, but um, for those who, who would be coming for the first time and it would, um, would be harder to find that PLN and it might be nice to have it available. So, Maria, I don't know what MOOC is. Feel free to raise your hand, take the mic, and I'd be glad to give you the mic. In fact, I'll give everybody the mic, and if you need it, just take it over. um It's massively open online courses, so um that's college so that's college level, but the idea is to have online experiences that uh, local people give credit for, but everybody can join. It's kind of what uh, MIT did for its coursework. Exactly, Thomas is putting some good names of people there. Mhm. Yeah, you know, I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage. I'm not an educator. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not in a classroom, never have been, um, but I can imagine that, um, that if you, if you were looking for a group of people to be supportive of a particular way of uh, working in your classroom, that it would be nice to have a ready-made network rather than building your own, but I know that's, even that's arguable. Well, I'm trying to be reasonably and appropriately humble here. It looks like people just have centers about particular topics or particular subjects, or even particular styles within particular subjects about particular topics. It's just very cellular, (laughs) very small. Thank you, Ira.
1: Thanks again, Ira.
0: Just kind of a plug for Ira's uh, websites. He's got his blog post really well organized if you want to read the material especially the history of education material um, so yeah, in fact I'll get that link right now so that you have it here in the chat okay I'm going to go ahead and turn the recorder off I think we're don't need to burden our listeners so the recording's going to go off but uh, I'll stick here for a few more minutes those of you who want to uh, chat in the in the chat area.